Revelation chapter 11 this morning, if you have your Bibles with you. Revelation chapter 11. And of course, you're aware, if you were here last week, that I intended originally to do chapter 11 and didn't do it. Because I changed my mind about halfway in the middle of the week because I didn't think I would be able to have the time to really grasp the significance of this chapter. And I'm not being melodramatic when I say that. Uh, and, and this week, I, I was very happy that I had pressed the pause button. And now I feel I have studied this so much, I have too much to tell you. I literally, this is not a lie, I literally cut the sermon in half uh, last night. And uh, I'm only going to do half of it today, and I'll do half of it. I'm prepared for next week now. I like that part. Uh, and, but um, this is a very difficult chapter to understand. And I'm in good company when I say that, apparently, because several authors, if you're reading the commentary literature, they start the chapter and their commentary on this chapter by saying it is the hardest chapter to interpret in all of the book of Revelation. Speaking of the text in particular that we're looking at this morning, verses 1 through 13 of Revelation 11. And I can attest to that because if you read the commentary literature on this chapter, even the best commentators seem to go off the rails in Revelation 11. I mean, some of the, the commentators, they always check and will continue to check my work against because they go deep and they bring in things that, that, I, that had never entered my brain before and are very helpful. When it comes to the big idea of this chapter, it's as if many, many of them have lost their anchor point. And it's because they don't read this chapter as a literal event. They read it as a metaphor. And if it's a metaphor, it can mean basically anything, depending on how you're putting the scripture together. And in fact, I did something this week I've never done before. When I was done with my initial study, I said, okay, I think I can can capture everything it's saying here. And I I wrote a few paragraphs explaining my interpretation of the text. I sent it uh, to my colleagues on the seminary faculty. And I said, what do you guys think? And their action was very helpful, especially because one of them actually wrote his dissertation on the interpretation of Revelation. In fact, I was thinking that I should just play dumb with him all the time and let him tell me what it means, and then I could just come here and save myself some time. Uh, But the interaction was very good, and I only mention that because I always like to give credit where credit is due. I, I always have so much help when I'm working through this, reading through the Word of God, thinking about it often, Uh, talking it over with people, reading the literature, and it's going to take me a little while to work through this, but I think you will find this to be a rich chapter. And in fact, this chapter actually ended up, I think, being one of those in the Word of God that helps us connect so much of what God is doing throughout salvation history. You might not see that as we just read through it, but I, I believe you'll see that by the time we're done. So I'm very excited to get into this chapter. So let's begin reading, and let's read the whole first 13 verses of this chapter, which we will take within about a three-week period here to get through, and I hope it will be uh, a real blessing to you. This is the Word of God. John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed 
in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. You make a holiday out of this. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, as we begin to look at this text, some of you are saying, yeah, I can see why it might be very difficult to understand what's going on here. But let's take a moment to orient ourselves, just a a few moments to orient ourselves again, especially since we've been away from Revelation for a few weeks, uh, to to what's going on in the whole book. Just very quickly, uh, the title or the book of Revelation is, is given to John by the Lord, remember? So that he can encourage the churches who are suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They're persecuted for the gospel. And the Lord wants them to know, I am returning with power. And I'm going to establish my kingdom and you will be vindicated. Everyone will know that you are in the right and your faith in me is not in vain. And that vindication means both the salvation of the righteous... And the judgment of the wicked both happen in the vindication of God and his people. We've already seen the judgment of the wicked in chapters 8 and 9. Some of it anyway. There's more to come. Seven angels in chapters 8 and 9 line up, each with a trumpet. And each angel blows his trumpet in his turn. And those trumpet blasts signal this worldwide cosmic destruction Upon the earth, we've looked at this chart before, the first four trumpets depict God systematically destroying his creation, actually the creation in reverse. God isn't throwing some divine temper tantrum in heaven. He is systematically looking at his creation and judging it, judging the earth. And in trumpet judgments five and six, it unleashes unspeakable suffering upon unbelievers in particular, 
especially those who killed the Lord's people. And ultimately, about 2 billion of the earth's population are violently killed. The Bible doesn't say 2 billion. I'm using the 8 billion number as I look at Revelation and do the math. And there's already 2 billion who have been taken out at this point. And now a third of those, which is another 2 billion. And later on, it will be half of that, which is another 2 billion. Because every time the, the amount gets smaller... The size of the uh, number stays the same, but the percentage grows. And by the end of chapter 9, what we saw is that only six of the seven angels have blown their trumpets. What about trumpet number seven? Well, there are two significant passages of Scripture that we come to before the seventh angel blows the trumpet. One of them is the last chapter we considered in our study, actually about a month ago today, uh, chapter 10. We finished up this chapter. This is where another mighty angel comes down to earth, if you remember, and announces that there will be no more delay. That once the seventh angel blows that last trumpet, there will be this series of judgment more uh, fierce and, and uh, more damaging than any of the others that have come before. And they're going to come in rapid succession, all seven judgments. They're the kind that Jesus speaks of, I think, in, in, when he, we spoke on the sermon uh, that he gave to his sermon, uh, he gave to disciples on the Mount Olivet, okay, the Olivet Discourse, right, on the Mount of Olives, that's what I'm trying to say. He, he talked to them and said, if, 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 if these judgments were not regulated, nobody on earth would survive. That's what's coming with the seventh trumpet blast. And as the earth is still reeling with the sheer devastation and humiliation of these last rapid judgments, the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 19 on a white horse breaks through the sky to return with innumerable armies of his saints with him in power and glory. And he conquers his remaining enemies. He establishes his kingdom and he reigns for a thousand years. So, there's this mood of suspense right here in the book of Revelation. It's as if the orchestra has just reached the final cadence and the music is coming to a crescendo and everybody is expecting that last big bum, 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 bum. You know what I'm talking about at the end of a symphony? Well, the, the good ones anyway. At the, end, at the end of the symphony and the music swells to that last dominant chord. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That fifth chord with the minor seventh that pulls you into the tonic key and you're expecting it. But imagine... That that second to the last note lingers, leaving you in anticipation. Your brain is just crying out for it to be over, and it stays there. That's what's going on right here in Revelation. In chapter 9, all six trumpets have blown. We're waiting for that seventh, and we have a whole chapter to tell us it's coming. And once that seventh trumpet blows, it's not going to be long, and Christ is going to come. And we read on into chapter 11, and we fully expect now this trumpet to blow. But it doesn't. There's something else that happens instead. John is told to measure the temple of God and the altar of sacrifice and those who are worshiping there, bringing their offerings. And then he's told of two witnesses who will prophesy for 1,260 days. Do the math, that's three and a half years. And the rest of the text is taken up with the ministry of these two witnesses, their deaths, their resurrections. And the result. So what's going on here? And why is it so important for us to have this narrative in Revelation at this place in the prophecy? 
Well, let's begin to take a closer look. Look at verse 1. John writes that he was given a measuring rod like a staff. This was a common way to measure structures. These were long, sturdy, but lightweight stalks that grew in the Jordan Valley, about 10 feet long, like, like the bamboo trees that a lot of people plant in the south. That's very comparable to what John was given. And John is given this measuring rod, and we're not told by whom here, and he says, I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship here. Now, here is where the commentators begin to struggle. What is this temple of God? Where did it come from? Is this another reference to the heavenly temple? I mean, at this point, all we've, all we've had so far in Revelation is, is either a metaphorical reference to the temple, like uh, we'll be, you'll be pillars in the temple, he says to his people in Revelation chapter 3. Is this another, another reference to a metaphorical temple or a heavenly temple? And what I'm going to tell you this morning is this actually appears to be a literal temple that is on the earth in the tribulation period. In other words, the Jewish temple that was destroyed in 70 AD is somehow rebuilt in Jerusalem to go through this tribulation period. Maybe it's built during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. I don't know. I don't, we're not given that information. All of a sudden, it's just there. Why is this a literal temple? Why is this not a heavenly temple? Well, I want, to point out, I want to point out a couple of things. First of all, in verse 2, look at that uh, text there. John says, uh, he's told anyway, do not measure the court outside the temple. You see that? Leave that out. For it is given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. That's another way of saying three and a half years. Do the math. Both of these, both of these time periods are three and a half years. And so you have to remember the court is the huge courtyard, like, you know, football fields in length around the temple. And the temple is in the middle. And this is what it's talking about. Use the word naos or temple, the actual building where you walk into and only the priests can go in there and so forth. But everybody else who's coming near the temple to worship and and want, want, want to bring their sacrifices, there's a big courtyard outside where you can do that. Only the priests actually go in the temple. And this particular place is being given over to the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles will trample it. And that's a very harsh verb. They're going to overrun it. It's not a nice thing they're going to be doing. I'll talk a little bit more about that next time. Or actually, the time after that. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the, the Gentiles and the significance of their trampling the outer court. But, but how could this be court, the court in heaven, see, that's heavenly, if the Gentiles are trampling it? Second, if we skip down to verse 19, I didn't read this as part of the text. It's later on in the chapter. Uh, This is actually after the seventh trumpet blows. So the seventh trumpet will blow in this chapter. But after it blows, it says, God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of the covenant was seen in his temple and so forth. So right here in this chapter, there is a distinction being made between the temple spoken of at the beginning of the chapter and the heavenly temple spoken of here at the end of the chapter. So that makes it seem like a literal temple versus the heavenly temple. By the way, the heavenly temple is literal. It's just a different kind of temple. It's not that it doesn't exist and it's a metaphor. It's just the temple in heaven that any temple we build down here is only a shadow of, a copy of. All right. Now, there's something else. 
There are other places in the Bible that appear to foretell a literal temple in Jerusalem during the final days before the Lord returns. And I want you to see these passages. We're not going to stay here long. But first of all, Daniel chapter 9. And now, of course, I'll put the words up here if you want to just look at the screen. But if you want to turn your Bibles and mark them and, and see this, it might be helpful for you. In Daniel 9, we've already looked at this passage. It figures in greatly to Revelation. This is where Daniel is in captivity because God has judged his people and Babylon has carried them away. He went in the second wave, I believe, of people leaving from, from, uh, with Babylon and going to, uh, to captivity. And he's in captivity later in his life, praying to God that God would reveal to him what he's supposed to do with his people. Because he's reading in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah seems to say, you're only going to be there 70 years. And he's like, wait a minute. He's checking his watch. You know, they had sundials, I guess. Um, but he's, you know, he's looking at the time, and he's, he's thinking, you know, the 70 years is getting close. Lord, what's your plan for us? Are you going to let us go back? And he really wants to know. And God sends an angelic messenger to Daniel to tell him what will happen to his people, the Jews. And what the angel tells Daniel has an uncanny resemblance to what we read of in Revelation. And in Daniel 9.27, we read about something that happens during the seven-year tribulation period. And he, that is the prince who will come, not the prince of peace, but another prince, a ruler, spoken of earlier in in the passage, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and that is one week of years, seven years. And for half of the week, that's what, three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator or the one who makes desolate. Now, we're not going to unpack the whole meaning of every one of these phrases here, but notice he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Where do the Jews make sacrifices and offerings? According to the Mosaic Law, there's only one place they're supposed to do this. There was an exception with the high places, but we're going to leave that aside for a minute. The the Jews all knew you only sacrifice in the temple. So apparently during the seven-year tribulation period, this prince or this ruler is going to make an agreement with the Jews to allow them to rebuild their temple and begin their sacrifices. But then for the second three and a half years, he's going to break all his promises and put an end to those sacrifices. And he's going to bring abominations into the temple and desolate the temple. That means to strip it of its glory, make it empty of its glory until the end comes that has been decreed for him. That's all we need to know about this passage right now. We're going to jump forward a couple of chapters to Daniel chapter 12, where we find the same idea. Daniel's asking for information about what's going to happen to his people, and an angelic messenger comes, and uh, Daniel 12, 11 says, and from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, he's referring to what he just talked about in chapter 9, There shall be 1,290 days, three and a half years. So there it is again, a three and a half year period in which someone puts a stop to sacrifices that have been ongoing in the temple. And he desolates the temple, strips it of its glory. So in order for the sacrifices to be stopped, they have to be started, which means that there must be a presence of an actual Jewish Temple, and then I want to turn to one verse, uh, one uh, chapter in the New Testament, Second Thessalonians chapter two. 
I believe Paul's writing 2 Thessalonians with his eye on Daniel 9 and Daniel 12. Paul is actually giving us an interpretation of those kinds of texts. And we could read actually 10 or 12 verses of this chapter, and it would all connect with what I'm saying here this morning. We're just going to have time, though, to look at verses 2 and 3. Now, Paul's telling the Thessalonians this because they got a letter from somebody that wasn't Paul that claimed to be Paul. You know what this letter said? All we know is what Paul says. It says, uh, he says at the beginning of this chapter, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. And, and they had deceived them because they had sent a letter pretending to be from Paul and them to say, hey, the Lord's already returned, you know, and uh, don't worry about it or whatever. I just said the return of the Lord has already happened. And they're like, what? And, they, and they've got these questions. So they write to Paul and Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you because that day is not going to come. Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The son of destruction appears to be this prince or one of the figures that's against the Jews in Daniel 9 and 12 who will bring desolation to the temple. So there has to be a functioning temple for someone to take his seat there. Now, Paul writes this letter about 20 years before the Jewish temple is destroyed in 70 AD. I mean, nobody really blinked in, in 2 Thessalonians when they read this letter because they knew the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. And this has caused some commentators to say, well, Paul is probably simply talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And that's what's going on here. But if you read that history, all that we have of it, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans who were trying to put down a Jewish rebellion and lay siege to Jerusalem. And the temple catches fire in that siege and it's burned to the ground. There's no record of any ruler who is trying to take over the temple or take his seat there. What Paul is talking about, if we take him literally, hasn't happened yet. And this is worth noting because we expect metaphorical language when we read prophecy. I'm not not against metaphor. The Bible's all full of metaphor. But the metaphors point to literal events. When Paul is writing this letter, he's just explaining the interpretation of metaphor. He's explaining the interpretation of what is going to happen in the future. So when we come to Revelation 11 and we read of a temple with an altar and worshipers, it's really not as if this springs up out of nowhere. The Bible indicates that there will be a literal temple in Jerusalem prior to to the Lord's return. And make no mistake about it. Some of you know this, and I'm not going to go into it, but there are Orthodox Jews in the world today who have been preparing for years, getting ready to rebuild this temple. And I've read all kinds of things about that. Apparently, all the materials are there. They have the designs ready. They're, they're, They're making the furniture of the temple off-site, and they're just waiting for that opportunity. Some say the Dome of the Rock has to be moved. That's where the Muslims have their mosque in order for the Jews to build their temple there. Others say, no, actually, archaeologists have said that the temple is actually in a spot where they actually could begin building it. I don't know about all of that. If you start reading things online, you don't know if you're reading truth or not, because there's a lot of drama going on about, about the temple. But all I know is if God indicates there's going to be a temple there, I know there's going to be a temple there. I don't know how it's going to happen. I just, I'm just dumb enough just to believe what it says, and I don't want to figure out all the, the metaphorical stuff. So in Revelation 11, 1 through 3, what is the significance of 
of John's being told to measure the temple. So why is he measuring it? Well, throughout the Bible, the city of Jerusalem and sometimes the temple itself, if you remember your Bible reading, if you like read through the Bible every year and that sort of thing, you remember there are times when the temple or the city is measured. And we don't have time to look at the text this morning, but in Ezekiel 40 through 48, for instance, these nine chapters, there's this angelic being showing Ezekiel the whole temple that will be built in the millennial kingdom. And the angel goes around measuring everything in the temple, every wall, every entrance, every floor, every room in detail. And in Zechariah 2, verses 1 through 2, the prophet sees a man measuring Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length, it says. And in Revelation 21, do you know what happens? John sees an angelic being measuring the new Jerusalem. We won't take time even to look at there this morning. But he measures the, 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 the new city and finds out that it's like four square. It's, it's at the same length on every side. It's measured. So why are the temple and the holy city in Scripture measured? And I'll tell you what I think. I think, first of all, it's measuring because it's something builders do. And throughout Israel's history, what do we know about Jerusalem and the temple? They're always being destroyed and recreated. I mean, it'd be very perfectly natural to have a measuring rod in the city, you know, standing by to rebuild every time it is destroyed. But beyond that, a lot of the commentators seem to think that God is expressing ownership over what he measured. I think a lot of that is driven by the fact uh, that God marks ownership in Revelation. But that's, I think, a good idea. I wouldn't argue against that. He's saying, you know, you're mine. You get to measure what belongs to you, right? But I think there's something else going on here, too. I think the idea is measuring for perfection. And that would apply to the New Jerusalem and to the the Millennial Kingdom Temple. God is saying, does this measure up? Are the dimensions correct? Is this the way it should be? And when John is told to measure the temple and its worshipers, God, I think, is sizing up his chosen people. The Jews. They're not believing Jews necessarily at all. They're just Jews who have their temple back and who are worshiping. And the the guy in charge of the earth has made a covenant with them and they're happy. And John is investigating not only their rebuild of the temple, but he's, he's measuring the worshipers themselves, he says. Do they measure up or do they fall short of the glory of God? What about the Gentiles? Well, John is told in verse 2, if you'll notice, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city for three and a half years, 42 months. So what does this mean in in large here? Either way you look at the measuring, and we'll we'll come back to some of the significance of the Gentiles, like I said, uh, in, in a couple weeks. But either way you look at the measuring, ownership, measuring up to a standard, What we see here is God interested in his people in particular, the chosen ones, the Jews, during this time period. He's not focused on the Gentiles. He's focused on his chosen people. And here's the significance of this. The end is near. The world is about to be judged and the Messiah is about to return. What is the Lord going to do? I mean, he can just go on and judge. He's got every right to do it. But instead, he sends two witnesses to target their mission on his chosen people for three and a half years. 
to call them to repentance. He says in verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days uh, clothed in sackcloth. These witnesses are specifically sent to the Jews. And I'll tell you how we know. First of all, in verse 3, it says they're clothed in sackcloth, which parallels the clothing the Old Testament prophets, such as Elijah in 2 Kings 1.8. Sackcloth was a sign of mourning. You don't, you don't, you know, this is not a health and welfare gospel, okay? You don't wear sackcloth for that. You're like, we've sinned, judgment is coming, and we're in mourning because of that. And we're calling you to mourn over your sin and embrace Christ, the coming king. And he's about to come for real. And so they're, they're wearing sackcloth. This is the way the Old Testament prophets did it. This is the way John the Baptist did it. They, did, they wore this simple clothing to call people into mourning. Secondly, it says in verse 4 that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And that is exactly how the Lord's witnesses are identified in Zechariah chapter 4. Again, we're going to look at this passage in detail later. Because it's, I'm going to, after we, we're going to take two Lord's Days. I'll just tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take two Lord's Days to look at the general idea of this. I think you'll see, it's just fascinating how this connects with all of Scripture. And then the last Sunday I planted to really look carefully at the ministry of these witnesses. I think there's a lot to learn there, just in a practical sense. But, so we'll look at Zechariah chapter 4 a little bit later. But, but Zechariah chapter 4 and 14 are built around these two olive trees and the two lampstands. And at the end of that chapter, it says, these are my witnesses. These are the Lord's witnesses who stand before him. And so these are given to the Jews. And then in chapter 3, you see that these witnesses have... Uh, the power, I should say, uh, number three, they have the power of Elijah and Moses. And you notice this starting in verse five. You don't want to mess with these witnesses. If you attack them, they attack back. And bad things happen. John says, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And then it says in verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the water to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And this authority that they are given to defend themselves at their own will reminds us very strikingly of other powers we have seen in the Old Testament, and those are the powers of Elijah and the powers of Moses. Do you remember how in 2 Kings 1, King Azariah, uh, or uh, Ahaziah actually, uh, sends companies of soldiers to bring Elijah to him by force, arrogantly, and there are 50 men that come, and they come to take Elijah, and fire comes down out of heaven and consumes them. This happens twice. Do you remember how Elijah told King Ahaz in 1 Kings 17.1 that there would be no dew or rain upon the earth until he said so? And in fact, James says the, this power was the power of Elijah's prayer life. He prayed earnestly and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Three and a half years, notice. And what does water turning into blood and the earth being stricken with every kind of plague remind you of? Of course, everybody's going to say Moses. That's exactly what you remind us of. Now, I'm not saying here, okay, I want to go on record. 
that these two witnesses are Elijah and Moses, okay? Like they're, they're uh, reincarnated or something or brought back from the dead. There is that view, actually, that, that some of these are going to be those people in the Old Testament who didn't die. You know, they never found Moses' body. Elijah's taken up in a whirlwind, right? Not in a chariot, in a whirlwind, if you read it carefully. And the chariot's along with the ride, but uh, he's taken up in the whirlwind. And then uh, the uh, uh, Enoch, you know, he was, he was translated, he was taken up. Uh, God just took him. So, so he is identified sometimes as one of these witnesses. I don't think it has to be anything like that, but I would at least argue from the scripture that these two men, whoever they are, come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And that's going to be important next week as we continue looking at this text. Then, fourthly, notice that they minister in Jerusalem. And for this, I'm going all the way back down to verse 8, where the text says their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. That symbolically, okay, so the author himself is saying, now this is just a symbol. It's Sodom and Egypt, so Jerusalem is not really looked at well right now uh, by the Lord. Calling it actually Sodom like it does in Isaiah 1. But he identifies this place as where their Lord was crucified. That's Jerusalem. That's the center of Jewish activity. So what's the big picture here? Simply this, that God the Father, knowing that his wrath must come upon the earth, sends witnesses into the world to call his own chosen people, the nation of Israel, to trust him and embrace their very soon coming Messiah. You would think they'd be paying attention of all the stuff that's happened already in the earth and the earth starting to come unglued, that they would be watching and wanting to listen to the preaching of the gospel. But this is the heart of God yearning for his chosen people whom he loves. He longs to bring them believing into their own kingdom that is soon to be set up. We hear the heart of God for his people in the Old Testament all throughout it. Here, here are just, these are just four random passages that came to my brain when I was thinking through this, and there are hundreds in, in, the, in the Old Testament. The heart of God through Jeremiah the prophet, when Israel first went into exile in Jeremiah 29, God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. This verse is not put in the Bible so that Christians in modern times have a Bible verse to print inside graduation cards, okay? This is not what this is for. This is about God's heart for Israel, his chosen ones. He is not destined evil for them. He has not designed evil for them. He has designed a glorious future, a glorious hope, and he looks forward to a day when he says, you will then call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me, uh, me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. He says to his people in Isaiah 49, can a woman forget her nursing child? I mean, can she actually forget that she has a nursing child, this, this, this wonderful child that God has given to her who she loves and coddles every day of her life, that, that, that she should have no compassion in the son of her room? 
Even these may forget. In other words, that's even possible if you compare this to my love for you, because I will never forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Hosea chapter 2 is where God likens Israel to an unfaithful wife who goes after another husband. God promises Israel a day when I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And he says to Ezekiel, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will put that in them. They're never going to be able to earn it. They're never going to be able to make themselves right. I'm going to have to make them good myself. I'm going to put that spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, a real heart, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now, I'm going to guess that most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles this morning. What about the Gentiles? Doesn't God love us too? Of course he does. In fact, we can take these passages in the New Testament that we just read here in the Old Testament and apply them to God's people in general. And God loves us too. But we have to realize as we read scripture, there is a meaning of the text in its context. He's speaking to his people. And we have to understand that if we're going to understand what he's saying in Revelation 11 and throughout the rest of scripture. We, we have to be serious about who God is speaking to and what time it is and what he's saying. So doesn't God love us too? And the answer is, of course he does. But we have to remember that it is through the Jews that salvation has come to us. The covenant that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 says, in you, all the other families of the earth, that's you and me, will be blessed. In Romans 11, now here's another chapter. We could read the whole chapter this morning. It would be full of meaning for what I'm saying here, but just two verses. Paul calls us here, if you look at this text, a wild olive branch. That's what he calls Gentile Christians, wild olive branches. We were broken off of the wild olive trees and we were grafted into the true tree. That's the tree of God's chosen people. Some of you who know agriculture know you can break a branch off and actually graft it in and it actually grows into the trunk of that tree. This tree is the one that's chosen, that's nourished, that's cultivated. And Paul warns us here in this chapter, don't you be proud because you got grafted in and many of them were cut off because of judgment, because of unbelief. Because he says, you don't nourish and sustain the tree. The tree still nourishes and sustains you. The new covenant is a Jewish covenant and it promises a Jewish kingdom and a Jewish Messiah who died for Jews and Gentiles, who will establish a beloved people from those Jews and Gentiles when he appears to judge the nations. And the mystery revealed in the New Testament is that we Gentiles were welcomed through a Jewish Savior, the Lord Jesus, who loves us like his own. You can, you can work that out in the, New, in the Old Testament when you read it now, but to a lot of the prophets and a lot of the people in Jesus' day, this was a mystery that God had to reveal, that we would be welcomed in and be on the same level as his chosen people. 
But originally, the chosen nation included only the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, you remember what Jesus said his mission was when he came to this earth, born in Bethlehem, living in Galilee? I preached this text last week, Matthew chapter 10. I did not have any idea how much it connects, actually, to what we're going to say about the witnesses in Revelation 11 in a couple weeks. Uh, But when we read this text, remember what Jesus said, go nowhere among the Gentiles. And enter no town of the Samaritans. You keep away from those people. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, your kingdom is here. If you will take it, if you'll receive it. In fact, Jesus makes this mission explicit a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 15. When a Gentile woman, remember this? begging Jesus to heal her daughter, and she, he won't listen to her. And she keeps after him. His disciples finally say, Lord, will you do something? She's really getting on her nerves. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, that was the commission his father gave him. You go to our people, our chosen ones. Rescue them before the judgment comes and the kingdom comes. And Jesus tells her in this text, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In other words, that I take the nourishing food that is meant for the chosen people and give it to the Gentiles. That was an appropriate metaphor because the Gentiles always, or the, the Jews always called the Gentiles dogs. They referred to them as dogs. And dogs are not domesticated animals that are nice and you can pet them. They're like wolves. They're wild at this time of history. And the woman with the heart of a mother yearning for her daughter to be healed, answered Jesus. Remember this? Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat from the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus loved her and said, great is your faith. And he healed her daughter, which is probably what he was intending all along, but he was wanting to make a point here about his mission. Now, this is a unique story in the Gospels because Jesus is seen ministering to Gentiles and to Samaritans. We see this in the Gospel. You you see Jesus' worldwide mission, uh, vision in the Gospels, even though he goes specifically to the Jews. For example, he ministered to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, right? But do you remember what he says to her in verse 22? Salvation comes through the Jews. Now, I want to demonstrate for you through the Old Testament exactly how salvation comes through the Jews. We are now at the halfway point of what I prepared for this morning. I just want you to know that. That's why I I drew the line right here, okay? And you're like, wow, wow. You know, we don't want the rapture to come during the sermon series. I told you a long time ago. And so uh, I'm going to try to hurry this up. But I want you to see how what what these two witnesses in Revelation 11, how they make perfect sense. Announcing the coming of the king and his kingdom ahead of the Lord's final return. And why this is not the first time this has happened. So that is where we're going to pick up our introduction to these two witnesses next week. But this morning in closing, I want to call your attention to one more final passage just to make some application here. I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, if you will. Peter is writing in 1 Peter 
both to Jewish and Gentile believers. This is very important to understand. This is where New Testament introduction breaks in and makes sense out of interpretation. If it's just to Jews, you get a big different uh, picture of what's, what he's saying here. If it's only to Gentiles, same thing. But noticing in the text as you read all of 1 Peter that you have Jews and Gentiles being referred to, this is really important. And we have to read this text as if we are Gentiles sitting alongside Jews in the assembly, listening to someone reading the apostle's letter. And he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. These are all Jewish terms. This is what God calls his people in the Old Testament. You are a chosen race. You're my chosen ones now too. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. At the end here, Peter is alluding to Hosea, where God says to his people, you are no longer my people because of your sin. You're not, you're not a son of mine. But there's coming a day, he says, when those who are not my people, those who are low ami, not my people, will be called ami, my people. And he says, you will one day be called children of the living God. Peter's referencing that passage in Hosea when he writes this. What was not realized at the time, however, was that Hosea himself maybe didn't even realize that the people of God would one day include the Gentiles. Because this is the heart of God for Jews and Gentiles, that they turn to him and know his love and know his salvation. And it is striking when you read Revelation chapter 11 that even though God has every right to finish the judgment, smashing sinners to pieces like a potter's vessel, like he says in the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, like a lingering, unresolved chord to once again he call his people to salvation. He's got every right to judge, but he doesn't. He holds it back, and he sends for three and a half years somebody to target his people, pleading with them to come, pleading with them to embrace Christ because of his love. When you and I think of our ministry to this community, we cannot think of it as a lazy, sunny afternoon kind of ministry where we have all the time in the world. Rather, we need to think of ministry as if there is tension in the air, as if that last note is lingering, and we don't know how long it's going to linger before the final note sounds and judgment comes and the opportunity is over. For if the next event on God's timetable is the rapture of his church, our opportunity to reach our community for Christ, which we talk about, it could end at any second. I'm, I'm struck, and I'll, I'll call attention to this in a couple of weeks, but I'm struck by that phrase where it says, when their ministry had ended. God, God had a timetable for how long those witnesses had to witness, and then it was done. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now 
is the day of salvation. We often give that call in case anybody is in the congregation who really doesn't know Christ, and you really need to embrace Christ. But this also has implications for us who have the ministry of the gospel, that it is now the day of salvation. It is the opportunity is now. It's why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3, he's fascinated with this statement from Psalm 95 that says, today, if you will hear his voice and do not harden your heart, but turn to God. Today. And, 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 and the writer of Hebrews gets fascinated with these little phrases and these little words here and there. And one of them is this word, today. And the author of Hebrews preaches this, this text from Psalm 95 in Hebrews chapter 3. And he says, take care, brothers, if you see anyone among you who is actually not a believer, you exhort that person while it is still today. Because there may not be a tomorrow. We rest in God's love and we are right to do it. We are secure in God's love. God really does love us. He's never going to let go of us. He has engraved us, even as Gentiles, on the palms of his hands. We are precious to him like a beloved child. We are his people. He is our God. But resting in his love does not mean relaxing in his love. Because there's work to do. Rena has sometimes told me the story of when she and her sister Tina, who are both in the church, obviously, were growing up. She said they would be left all alone at home for a few hours while their mom left them a list of chores to do around the house. And they were warned they had better have those chores completed or there would be an apocalyptic-like return. But Rena says that as soon as their mom left, they would get all dressed up in these fancy dresses and they would put on shows in the living room and they would have this great time. But then they would realize she's going to be back in like half an hour, and they would uh, change really quick, put everything away, and they would frantically run through the house doing all this cleaning, folding laundry, and all the things that were on the list before the parental parousia, the return of the mom, uh, <laughs> arrived. Now, you've had that experience before, I'm sure, as you grew, grew, grew up and were given lists. What moved them from a sense of relaxation to a sense of urgency? It was the realization that the time was short, that tension was lingering, that accountability could come at any moment. But in their case, the motivation was because of the consequences for themselves. What I'm saying this morning is that we need to have the same sense of urgency because of the consequences for others. Without that urgency, that expectancy of the Lord's return, that tension... I'm afraid that we are merely putting on a show. And a move to a bigger building could be nothing more than a bigger stage to perform on. And I want the Lord to convict us if we have that attitude. This is not why the Lord is building our church or any church. And it's not why we're gearing up, talking about discipleship, learning how to do it together. This is a very important thing we're doing right now. We're preparing ourselves for action, and we need to pray that the Lord gives us the sense of urgency that you sense in Revelation 11. We are the Lord's merciful witnesses in Traveler's Rest. 
And I trust that we will take seriously the opportunity that he has given to us, not out of fear that we're going to be judged by him. We're his children. He's not going to forsake us. But out of a love for those who do not know him, whether it's still called today. And so may God give us his grace as we continue to learn how to be his people, serving in his family, bearing witness of the gospel and the coming of the king. Father, we're